enter the Ebony Tower podcast, a resource, conversation, and community for and by brilliant yet underrecognized and underrepresented scholars of color. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ebony Tower podcast. I'm Daphne. I'm Rachel. And we are here today with a very special guest. Today is our very first podcast scholar spotlight. As you know, we've had some of them posted on the website for a while, but we thought that you might want to hear from Black academics in live and in action. So we are welcoming Dr. Terrell Connor. Welcome. How you guys doing? Good. Doing, doing great. And I hope the audience is also doing great. So we generally start these conversations by introducing you to the audience and in your own words. So who is Dr. Terrell Connor? And, you know, just tell us a little bit about your background. Okay, sure. Uh, but before I begin, I just want to say thank you to uh, you, Daphne and Rachel, uh, for having me on here. I think what you guys are doing is excellent. Uh, the Ebony Tower really uh, highlighting black scholarship and black work and helping graduate students. I think you all will be a very, very useful resource to a lot of students of color, graduate students of color, or, or even outside of that when they're trying to navigate their terrain of figuring out what to do with their lives post, you know, uh, regular bachelor degree educations and graduate school, etc. So I want to commend you all for what you're doing. And I'm excited to see where this goes in the near future. So, so shout out to you. Thank you so much. Thanks. <laughs> shout out to you. Thank you. Uh, no, thanks for all you do. Yeah. Uh, but who who am I? Um, well, you know, uh, I guess I'm. A, I have assumed a lot of roles. I'm a husband. Uh, I am a brother. I'm a son. Um, but beyond that, professionally, I am a professor, assistant professor at SUNY New Paltz. Um, I consider myself an academic, but I am more active in the sense, not with just focus on research, but I'm sure I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, besides, you know, me being a professor and research, um, I think some of the things I like to do as well, watch a lot of TV, maybe too much TV. Um, but I think really, <laughs> sometimes when I, when I talk to my students, or I talk to other people and I just really think about how much, how much shows I actually watch. Uh, it's, it's pretty alarming in a lot of ways. I don't even know how I figure out the time to watch them all, but maybe because of DVR and Netflix and stuff like that. Um, help <laughs> you know i also read i also listen to podcasts um you know i like to work out you know so i try to stay keep a well balanced lifestyle and not try to be too much of any one thing you know that's great um and so tell us a little bit about what motivated you to to pursue a phd um what motivated um i i would say when i started when i was an undergrad i was a psychology major um and for me, I've always, my goal was always to help my community in some way. And I wasn't really sure, of course, going to undergrad, being a psychology major, that was always kind of the go-to default method. Like, you know, okay, I could be a psychologist and I can help people in counseling. Um, and then as I kind of furthered uh, my academic career as undergrad, um, I started to take, you know, electives and I started to take some sociology classes. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, I love psychology, but when I was taking sociology. I was like, oh, wow, this is uh, something different because it really focused on groups, group dynamics, um, social behaviors, dealing with groups. And I felt that psychology was cool, but it was more individual. And what I wanted to do was make changes 
for groups. Um, and so a lot of the material in the sociology is my first time being exposed to it. Uh, I just was really drawn to. Um, and so regardless, I always planned to go to graduate school because I knew I couldn't really do much with just a psychology degree, a bachelor's in psychology. Um, so I was always planning that, but then I was like, you know what? About my junior year, I was like, I'm going to change course a little bit and try to go the sociology route because I really wanted to just do research uh, that really focused on group behaviors, mainly with race in some capacity. And that kind of led me in that way. And then specifically, while I'm studying things dealing with the criminal justice field, um, I kind of happened to stumble upon that. My academic advisor and undergrad, she did a lot of work on maternal incarceration, pretty much mothers in prison. And at first, you know, I was young, like, why do I, why would I want to study mothers in prison? This has nothing to do with me. This is not cool. Um, and then we got wow. to do a lot of research and we got to actually interview a lot of, you know, mothers who were formerly incarcerated um, and dealing with those things and reading the literature. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is intense. And there's a lot to be done here. And a lot of people don't kind of study this stuff and look at it. And that really kind of sparked my uh, research light bulb, I guess, if you will, um, to help me, you know, like, oh, this is cool. Research is cool. And research can actually mean something because the research we can conduct will tell these women's stories and then hopefully it can lead to some change. And so that's the route I want to do. And of course, things dealing with criminal justice to date that we see during that time, you know, we're still a lot going on too. A lot of conversations about the maltreatment of, 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 of people of color when it comes to criminal justice. And I'm like, this is where I would like to make my impact. Wow. Mm. I was going to say your work sounds really interdisciplinary, um, but what exact discipline would you say you fall mm. into? Or maybe you reject that question altogether. Um, yeah. So, and this will definitely go into probably a part of the discussion as well, as far as how to market yourself. So, uh, you know, my training is in sociology, but I specialize in law and society which allows me to also fall into the realm of criminologists uh, and and criminal justice. Um, so right now where I'm at in SUNY New Pulse, I'm the coordinator for, for the criminology concentration. Uh, but I also, you know, have a lot of training in sociology where I've taught intro to social classes and social problems, et cetera. But more of my expertise is falling in probably the more criminologist element because it does combine a bunch of like sociological theories along with uh, explanations of criminal behavior within criminal justice. So I like that in-between mode, but I can fit myself in criminology, criminal justice, sociology, and maybe even potentially some political science as well. I have some overlap with my with my classes in that too. I was actually thinking the same thing as Rachel, how interdisciplinary you are. To be completely transparent, I've known Ty or <laughs> Dr. Connor for years, and I didn't know you started off like psychology. Did you officially switch your major or I did graduated you graduate with psychology? With psychology? Did not know that <laughs> at all. But that kind of reminds me of me because I have a human development undergraduate degree, a master's degree in sociology, getting a PhD in education. But I feel like I fit in political science. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. just kind of all over the place. And that's just kind yeah. of how things happen. You mentioned uh, your academic advisor as an undergrad and being able to participate in research, which is something that not a lot of undergrads get to do. Um, in the past, I've read that historically Black colleges often produce more Black PhD recipients than any other type of institution. And I wanted to know whether that surprised you. Um, do you think having that mentorship is something that potentially contributed to your trajectory and your ability to not only 
go straight from undergrad to the doctoral program, but you graduated mm-hmm. in five years. Oh, six years, six years. That's still good because the yeah, average I'm, is I'm like I'm not eight. complaining. You know, I'm not complaining. <laughs> um, but yeah, as far as being at HBCU, for me also being a first generation college student, you know, neither of my parents went to college. And of course, I'm the oldest of three. It was a totally new experience. I was originally from New Jersey and then I went to school all the way in Virginia um, as well. So I completely was going to a whole new world, giant leap of faith. And I knew I was always a good student um, in high school and stuff like that. And so I knew I wanted to do well, uh, but it was a new experience for me. And it was kind of scary in a lot of ways, right? I'm, I'm 18 years old and I'm leaving home and I'm going to somewhere where I don't have any immediate contact, like somebody to tell me about college life. Um, so when it comes to that mentorship, I mean, it was, it was, I, words, it was invaluable in a lot of ways, uh, mainly because again, like I said, I was first generation. Um, and so being able to attach to certain faculty that would help me, you know, see some things a certain way, give me some guidance, uh, was good. And I think what's also important about that is that although they gave me this guidance, uh, their, um, commitment to excellence, was just was very high, right? So I think, and sometimes, sometimes people say, "Oh, when I care about somebody, I have to be, you know, soft on them," or you know. But no, I would get a lot of tough love, um, and so it was like they were supportive of me, but they expected nothing but the best in all my situations. And so I think that's a culture in many HBCUs. I think also because they just understand that after we leave that institution, that the world is going to be tough for students of color. And so they got to kind of toughen us up a little bit, love us, but show us, hey, you're about to walk in here. And if, and if because I love you, I have to make sure that, you know, you're strong enough to handle some things. Um, and so I think I'm not surprised when I see that many students from HBCUs attain black PhDs uh, because of how what's instilled in most of us going there so i think when i got to my graduate program um i was prepared and mentally uh for the you know for the rigor that most phd programs have um because of what i received from the mentorship at my hbcu wow yeah that's so interesting um and you know to break down this conversation about uh identity and your trajectory and history not to make uh assumptions about how you self-identify, but I guess I was thinking about how Black men are particularly underrepresented in academia, and I wondered how this has affected your trajectory as well um, towards oh, attaining man. PhD. Um, being underrepresented, it's it's interesting. Um, I would say being at a school like Purdue, where there were 40,000 students and there were only about 250 black graduate students. Um, and then, you know, even looking at that number, probably about half of that were black males. So you're maybe talking about 125 black male graduate students in a school of 40,000. Uh, you can definitely feel alienated in a lot of ways. Um, and I was good because I had my own little social bubble and family, uh, things like the Black Graduate Student Association, um, Yep. Yeah. I'll be going to say. Um, and a lot of my peers were also in the same boat. Many of them also came from HBCUs as well. So we all had that same um, understanding of the rigor, uh, the toughness, but just understanding when we need to be family, we need to have each other's backs because it's not an easy world and not going to be easy to, you know, as far as graduate school. Um, and so, so a lot of support. And so I really can say I personally didn't feel alone in it. Right. Because I had I reached out to those other networks, but it can be tough because I've seen people who did not have that and they did not make it. 
Um, so I think it is crucial when we're talking about succeeding at the graduate school level to find a family unit, whatever they may, whatever that may look like, because that will really help you get through some of the tough times in that PhD life. Can I just say that Ty was definitely the most social person I have ever met in graduate school. He was essentially the social coordinator for the whole 250 <laughs> black people ever did. I go lie, you know, I have my fair share of parties at the house trips you know i just wanted to be yes. felt, i felt good being around people and i also just wanted to be an outlet you know come out have fun put the books down and sometimes you know everybody's an overachiever so you have to push people a little bit you know put the books down let's go out you know let's get a drink let's let's laugh a little bit the books ain't going nowhere the phd ain't going nowhere so you know you'll make it that's really awesome that's really nice Hmm. So now you are currently an assistant professor at SUNY New Paltz. And um, I heard from Daphne that you had kind of considered going into industry rather than pursuing an academic uh, career. And so I wondered if you could walk us through that decision process and why you ultimately decided to accept the position you're at now. Okay, uh, for sure. For me, going through graduate school, you know, and they prepped us in my department to be in academia, mainly at R1s. But seeing how academia was set up, seeing how a lot of my peers didn't make it out of graduate school, I was really hmm, had a distaste for it uh, because I felt that we're already the minority and the way it's structured, it wants people to conduct research and do things a certain way, which is pretty much the white dominant way, right? Uh, the way most of these PWIs have been. Um, and so I was like, hmm, I don't know. I want to make more of an impact. And I don't know if going into an academic position will allow me to do that. So I tried to, when I was on the market, I tried to dibble and dabble in both. One of the biggest things I think I realized when I was looking at a lot of industry jobs was that they wanted a lot of experience, right? I had the academic credentials, but I didn't have five years experience, six years experience doing certain things. So although I look good on paper, I, I had very little experience because I've been in um, college my entire life. Uh, and so I never had that time to really work and get a career. Um, so I really didn't qualify for a lot of those positions. Now, I did knock on a couple doors and I found a couple of interesting positions where I would do some consulting with... Um, with, with government institutions, mainly like things with courts and talking about things and focusing into like diversity kind of issues and trainings, um, which would have been cool as well. Cause I was trying to do that with like the federal courts and have conversations there. But then when I saw the workload, I mean, it was just like traveling four to five days a week, getting paid really well, but I'm just on the road all the time and doing this consulting kind of work for various institutions. And, you know, I'm kind of a person, the way I've always been, I like to have be my own boss in a way and have my own flexibility. Um, so I was like, you know what, I'm more prepared for an academic position. I don't have the experience. I can do it, but that's not really what I want. So let me go ahead and shoot my shot and see what it's like in academia and then um, if I don't like it, you know, industry jobs aren't going anywhere. So I can always figure out how to get in there later. But most people say, you know, if you go industry first and then go to academia, it's much harder because, you know, you have to compete with people who are constantly producing, doing academic work, teaching, et cetera. And you might have this major gap. So I, I ultimately chose to do that route. And, I, and I'm actually, you know, happy I did that. For, for a couple of reasons. Mm. That's really good to hear as someone who, you know, had also gone back and forth, especially because I had a background as a teacher, 
working in the field is a little bit different from being in an academic setting. So, I mean, everyone probably wants to know, what is it like being on the other side? Like, you know, what is life like as a teacher and a researcher when you don't have, you know, a graduate director or an advisor hanging over your head? Yeah, you know, when I used to ask that question to, you know, faculty when I was at Purdue, and a lot of them say, you know, in many cases, it feels easier. Um, and, and I can see why they said that. Uh, just because you are your own boss in a lot of ways. You don't have anybody over your head telling you when to, you have to take classes, when you have to do this particular research and these you know, all these demands that you have to do in a graduate program, you're your own boss. So you create a schedule that's fitting for you. You create classes that you like teaching. You do research that you like doing um, and you do it in your timetable. If you don't want to write during the semester, then you can write in the summers. You can write in the winters. You know, uh, I think so with that freedom gives you just kind of this breath of fresh air. Like, oh, OK, you know, I don't have to pressure myself now. Being on a tenure clock is always in the back of your mind. So I don't know if you ever really fully relaxed. But I think that pressure that you have while in graduate school of always having to perform at your, at your best to kind of prove yourself, you still have to prove yourself, but it's just way more a relaxed feeling and not as crazy, you know. But the, it, it depends on how you are as a person. Like I said, I, I, like you said, I've always kind of been a little bit more relaxed as is. Um, so other people may feel a little differently, maybe more anxious, anxiety because of that tenure clock. Uh, but if you pace yourself out right, I think you'll be you'll be fine. But it's not bad. That's great. You know, thinking about that transition from graduate school to uh, academic career, I wondered if you could talk a little bit. I mean, I guess this is a question I've been mulling over myself uh, while making my CV. What are the kinds of valuable skills that you think you acquired through uh, your PhD uh, process? Valuable skills. Um Reading, writing, you know, the basics for sure. Uh, being able to disseminate uh, kind of complex information and simplify it in a lot of ways when I did my teaching. Um, I think that's a big thing when you're thinking about going to an academic institution, you know, being able to really have conversations about research that can be pretty robust in a lot of ways and, and, and difficult for most people. Um, asking great questions. Uh, but I think when I'm looking at it and, I, and, you know, right now I'm currently leading a search and then I just finished participating in another search for a position on campus. Um, every, most people come out looking good on paper, right? Uh, most people are going to have pretty good GPAs. You're going to have recommendation letters that are pretty, you know, people talking really highly of you because they know you. Um, so on paper, there's not much variation on what we see as far as candidates, um, especially only if it depends if you're looking for specific things. But I think what really makes or break people in doing this from the other side, looking at it is really interviews, um, how you are socially. Are you going to, you know, fit in with the group? I think this is what faculty consider a lot, too. Of course, they try to predict things like, can you do research? Will you be able to publish? Are you a good teacher? But most of that can be said in your recommendation letters and your teacher uh, and your teaching evaluations. Um, but for the most part, it's it's more of what you can give in that kind of those informal socially spaces. I think what stands out more than what is on paper. Yeah, I agree. I heard that quite a bit during my uh academic mm -hmm. job market search, um, which I just completed. So 
Yeah, it's important. And it's something you don't get training for in graduate school to be a social being like you did, right? Because you took on that role. But had you not, you know, it's something you would have needed for your job search that maybe you weren't prepared to be so social and good in interviews. It's very interesting. You're right. Because, I mean, a lot of it is focused on research and, you know, those kind of skill sets. But there should be a little bit more of, you know, the social social aspect of it, because that's technically what can make or break you in these interviews of landing a good job. Yeah, I totally agree. So in, in thinking about, you know, you participating in teaching and research and everything that comes with faculty life, I wanted to know what do you, what is the biggest obstacle you face now and how does that compare to the obstacles that you faced as a graduate student? Okay, so I think for me, one of the biggest obstacles I face is, again, being you know, not only first-generation college student, then getting a PhD first in my family, right? And then now I'm a professor. And it's like, man, like who just, you know, who do I go to to kind of talk about these things and these issues I'm having? I thought, I honestly thought I was going to have more issues uh, with race because there's just not a lot of faculty of color, especially male faculty of color. Uh, most of my faculty colleagues of color are women, um, which I, you know, kind of expected, but I, cause I kind of seen that a little bit at Purdue as well. But, you know, for, as far as just like when I was in graduate school, you know, I had friends, you know, we were all close in age, vibe the same way. And, you know, just were able to, you know, that social element with, which gives you a well-balanced life was there for me at a graduate school, you know, at any major institution. And then when you get to the other side, um, you know, m- most of my colleagues are white. Um, most of them are my parents' age. No one is near my age, right? So I'm feeling this age gap be a major challenge of connecting with my colleagues. Not that I have any issues or we don't have conversations, but I really don't hang with them like that because the things they're into are just not the things that I'm into. I actually can probably have more conversations with my students than I do with my colleagues about, you know, just current pop culture, what's going on, music, TV, shows, and they're I have no idea what they're doing, really. Not saying anything bad about them, but it's just that big age gap. And so it's harder for me to find people to connect to socially. Um, but support-wise, my department is really great. They support me, you know, as far as research agendas, help dealing with students, help, any questions I have. You no, know, really, really supportive. A hundred thousand percent, no issues there. But socially, I I actually feel alienation here. And I don't think it's because of my race, but I do think it's mainly because of my age. And when I started, yeah, I mean, I went straight through, like I said, so I never took a break. So when I started, I was 28 in this faculty position. You know, I wasn't even 30 yet. And also my colleagues are in in their 50s. And that big age gap was just, you know, it just made some things difficult, to say the least. That's a great uh, point that I guess I've never really thought about. You're right. There is a often a generational uh, gap between new faculty and then, you know, faculty that are holding on and have been in a department for a very long time. Okay. So, um, personally, I know that you have always been interested and you mentioned it earlier, impacting the communities that you research. So as a professor, what is your approach to having broader impacts outside of academia? Um, Yeah. Yeah. This is a question that I'm really glad you asked because I feel like, and this is from my experience and maybe it can be wrong, but most 
students of color, most marginalized students are coming to graduate school to do research that affect and impact their communities, whatever communities they come from. And it's a very common theme. It's rare that I've seen people that just want to do research just to do it. It has to mean something to us because we're in these positions and we feel like we want to give back and we have to give back. And we're trying to figure out how we can do that. Now, is academia the most receptive place to that? No, because most of the time it's been dominated by by white males and their idea of research is sometimes historically have just been different than what most minority academics have been trying to do over time. And so this is something that I really, really, you know, honed in on. This is something that I want to do. It's just a part of my core being. And so there's no way I would be doing accepting any kind of position that wouldn't allow me to do research that really impacts my my community. Um, and so one of the ways I do it is, and even when I was in Purdue, I've always just, I'm, I've never wanted to be... Um, you know, what people think of when they think of somebody from who has a PhD or maybe from the, you know, the ivory tower, not the ebony tower. We do things different over here. <laughs> but, you know, that kind of your head, your head up, your nose up, you're looking down at everybody and then you get out there and you're this and that and all these accolades behind your name. I never I never wanted that to me. The biggest honor was always getting what I can get and being able to always communicate with people from my community, right? And I feel like in order to do that, you still have to uh, be a part of that community, right? If I just stayed in Purdue, but I never went and talked to the kids, you know, that were having issues or troubled youth or whatever in high school and, and been a part of various programs, then I feel like you might, it's like a, a certain language you have to speak, a certain way you have to walk, right? And and I feel like I never wanted to be disconnected from my community. And so you really want to be a part of a a space that allows you to do that. So currently now, one of the biggest things I do is I hold a group for Newark, which stemmed from my research um, every two weeks for formerly incarcerated black males who are around college age. And we have conversations about things like racism, police brutality, politics, right? A lot of the stuff I talk to with the kids in my um, in my classes. And what I really appreciate about this too is that I feel like it's diversifying how I teach because when you teach the college students, it's just you socialize in a way you got to give them the information in a certain way. When you have a, a, a conversation, similar conversation, similar topics, but with guys who have no educational experience, especially at outside of high school, right? And not you never sat in a college classroom. It's a totally different approach, way more conversational, how I pull information from them, how I get to see information, how I get them engaged. And I really appreciate that too, because I feel like I'm adding an additional skill set. But regardless of that, it just makes me feel really good at my core, right? I'm doing, I'm volunteer. I've been doing this for almost two years uh, to sit down. And, and the guys will say to me, you know, I come in there, I don't come in there with no suit and tie. I come in there with my, my polo boots on, some jeans, maybe a hoodie. And then, and, and they're like, yo, you're a professor, you know? And then the, the supervisors are telling me the same thing, you know, after I leave guys will be like, yo, I can't believe he's a professor. And a part of it is just, I just want to show them like, People have this image of what professors are and how they can relate to you. But no, I, I, I'm here for you all. I'm here so I can show that I can relate to you. We can have conversations. We can talk about hip hop. We can talk about basketball, whatever it is, right? Whatever I need to do to draw you in and to kind of be visible to them to show them like you can do this too if you want it. But also that you're, we're not untouchable in academia. Um, and a lot of my research goes into that, you know, of like trying to attack things in the criminal justice system that really have been overlooked, especially with these new innovative programs. Don't have to go into all of that, but really trying to make it so that, you know, we are addressing race race and racial differences with these programs as well. Um, but yeah, this is a part of who I, I don't think I can, I could ever, you know, just not be a part of the community or do research 
for the community. And I think, like I said before, that's, I think, common with most people of color. It's just what we need to kind of keep going. It, I think it also motivates us, a lot of us. I was also about to say, do you want to shout out the Black and Highly Dangerous podcast, which is something really awesome that you do? Yeah, Yeah, the Black and Highly Dangerous podcast. You know, I came up with the idea and then, of course, I got my friend Daphne on board um, because she, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to work with Daphne is, you know, not only because we worked together very well when uh, I was uh, president of the Black Graduate Student Association at Purdue, uh, but also I've seen, you know, I, I watch what people do, you know, and I feel like in this day and age, we have a lot of social media stunners, you know, people just want to say they're about things and want to do things. And they put up all these long, eloquent statuses on Facebook, but I never see them in the community. I never see them do anything actively that's actually trying to, you know, change the narrative a little bit or do things differently. And so, I, you know, I sat back, I watched, I see what Daphne was doing with Ebony Tower, trying to push that, really be a resource and, and things like that. Of course, when her background, it teaches for America, which also comes with that same kind of, um, that those personal traits, right, of just wanting to help and give back, being a teacher all the time. So I'm like, you know, this would be a good person. And so one of the reasons I want to do Black and Highly Dangerous is to create a resource for people who are, again, not in academic settings, which is a lot of people when we talk about marginalized communities. And I want to just talk about things that they may like whether or have conversations about, whether it's like code switching and talking black, whether it's about personal finances, whether it's about gentrification, right? Um and be a resource for them where they can access us for free. Just click on YouTube or iTunes, wherever to listen to, and learn these things. And we're giving this stuff that I teach and talk to my college students about for free. Um, another way that I do feel like, you know, I just want to give back and be a part of the community as well. I just want to say that was a word about uh, <laughs> the social media thing. You were preaching mm-hmm. right there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Go, mm-hmm. go, Reverend Connor. <laughs> Um, I really loved what you were saying about how your teaching expanded um, through uh, teaching outside of the classroom, right, in the community. And it's something I've been thinking about. I just want to, like, spend, like, a second talking about it because – so I'm uh, Mm -hmm. adjuncting at a university, and it's in a community that has, like, a big population of retired um, middle-class white people and often they audit they Mm -hmm. call it auditing here they audit the classes and generationally it brings such a diversity to the conversation can be very stagnant in my classroom right and so I've just been thinking about man Mm -hmm. how interesting it would really be to have classrooms that were really integrated with different types of communities and so I even asked that for you like do you Mm -hmm. think sometimes like if I could bring these community students into contact with my Sunni uh students like what would the dynamic be like in the classroom and how would that change education Mm, it would be phenomenal and I think there's more that needs to happen with that um one of the reasons I came to New Paltz is because they had a program which hopefully we'll bring back soon inside out program where we actually take college students and we go inside a prison facility and we have we teach a college course with them together um and you know from what I've heard of it 
profound impacts, right? Really having the college students check things like their own privilege, but also kind of socializing many of these people who haven't had any college experience who are behind bars and what a college classroom looks like, conversations, you know, all that kind of stuff and the different dynamics of um, these conversations. I know in my podcast, we had Dr. Um, Holiday come and talk about sociolinguistics and she actually did the Inside Out program. And, you know, one of the things that stood out to me is when she did it, She's a linguist linguist, and the students from her class are always about because linguists kind of have this kind of liberal view of, you know, speech and there's no right or wrong way to speak. And you have to speak the way you want. And, you know, we should be accepting mm-hmm. of all. But the guys behind bars were like, no, I have to speak like this because otherwise I'm not going to get a job. Like, it's fine and dandy that you can say this as a college student, but I can't do that. And then it, and then she really had the college students, you know, navigate that and unpack that because it was a set of privilege for them that they can say, oh, I can speak whatever I want, but you're also going to have these credentials behind your name, degrees what and whatnot. And these individuals can't. So I think it's like it provides so much more than what you can get out of a book or a research paper. Mm-hmm. Yo, can I just say for a second, you just reminded me of, so I'm an anthropologist and mm-hmm. I had a similar situation in the classroom because some, mm-hmm. some of the uh, people in my program were linguists, okay. um, where someone who was not black was basically arguing again, understandably that like there is no right or wrong speech in terms of like communication is communication. Mm-hmm. Um, but talking about African-American vernacular English and making that argument. And I remember distinctly that when I pushed back about that in terms of, right, like how it actually does impact your ability to get to certain places in society and really like just have social and cultural capital, right? Mm-hmm. I posed the question of like, show me a African-American uh, successful person who is able to f- speak freely, right, with mm-hmm. African-American vernacular English whenever they please. Mm-hmm. And then the answer was a rapper. And I remember just being so like, yo, this is crazy. Like mm-hmm. you are, that's that's the epitome of success for our children. Yeah, crazy. Crazy. Yeah, it mm-hmm. I was going to say, you you clearly do a lot. And I was just really wondering, how do you balance it all the, from the podcast to teaching in the community to, you know, s- serving as the director for your particular uh, concentration? How, how do you do it? Um, I wish I could answer that all the way. <laughs> I'll be trying to ask myself, you know, when I sit back and think about all I'm doing, uh, I think this is something that I've always felt that's, you know, one thing I live by. You always make time for what you feel is important. Um, and so when it comes to academia, and I think this is a part of just when we get into this conversation really quickly, too, about where to decide how to approach the job market, um, a part of it is where I'm at. You know, being more, I would say it's a hybrid of teaching and research, maybe a little bit more on the teaching side of an institution. It gives me the flexibility to do more service related stuff without it holding up my tenure clock, um, which is good. And I'm in a department that's very supportive of that. Um, But also, you know, I'm just I've just been very uh, careful of how of what I would listen to people say when they would tell me about what their experiences, what I should be doing when I get to academia. I'm just very confident in the belief that when any of us get a PhD, that we have 
shown that we can do whatever it is we do. We need to have have the confidence just to be like, okay, I hear what you're saying, but you have the right to do it the way you want to do it. And a lot of the narrative I always had going to from graduate school, going to academia was, oh, don't do service. Don't do this. You got to just focus on your research. You got to focus on, you got to focus, focus, focus on that. Focus. I'm like, that's cool and all, but that's not who I am. You know, of course I'm going to do my research just like I did it in graduate school. I'll do, I'll hit all the checks, um, check marks so I can, you know, continue to excel and, and move up the ladder, but I'm not going to put back who I am. So being, like I said, being a part of the community, you know, going to Newark, that's every other one, every other Thursday, you know, the second or fourth Thursday of every month, you know, the, the podcast, I worked on it for months before where I really developed a system of how I can work that into my weeks where I really working in the weekends, you know, teaching my courses, um, you know, I'm always just on top of that, but a lot of the courses I've taught already, so I'm not doing a lot of new preps in my third year in, so I already have syllabi and the lesson plans for that, so it's not like I'm doing a lot of new work. And I just, I really just strategize how when I teach my classes, when the papers come in, so I'm not overloaded with three classes worth of papers. I get one class, the next week I get another class. So I think it's just trying to be really organized. Um, in a lot of ways too. And then, you know, just realizing that as far as research related, I really take advantage of that and do that outside of the semesters, like winters and summer breaks is where I do a lot of my writing to stay on top of my research aspect stuff. So along with that, I was going to ask you, do you have any new research projects you're working on that you can give us a sneak peek or tell us about? Um, so yeah, there's a couple of things. So for me, just to give a quick background, I studied my, my dissertation was on specialized courts, community courts, and we're seeing a lot of these courts develop, uh, throughout the nation as a response to a lot of the overcrowding, um, and overburdened criminal justice system. So these courses, courts are used as a alternative measure. Instead of sending the people to prison, they'll have to do certain mandates, whether it's like drug treatment, uh, you know, maybe it could be getting getting a GED. It could be doing community service, what have you. And it, they do these things first. And if you don't succeed, then they use incarceration as the ultimate final kind of punishment. Uh, but anyway, so I was very fascinated with these kind of programs because I felt like, okay, we're heading in the, the right direction. But of course, what I wanted to know and see is were they looking at race, right? Were they seeing are there any racial differences? Because time and time again, these programs get a lot of get praised a lot, either from academics or from the public, for you know having good success rates. But then my question was successful to who? You know, who is there? that's the question. Then it gets overlooked, and then ten years from the line, down the line, we see that oh, you know, black folk aren't succeeding at the high rates. And I feel like this program should be really good for communities of color and marginalized communities who actually need these services more than others. Um, and so what I've been finding, what I have found, is that as you may have predicted that black folks succeed at, you know, drastically lower rates than white counterparts in these programs. You know, white people are succeeding in about three times the rate and nobody's talking about it. Understandably so, mm -hmm. because they're trying to only talk about success rates because that's what gets them their funding. And nobody wants to highlight that they're failing in some aspects. You know, some are doing well, but overall, for the most part, most of them are not performing to the to the, the way they need to in communities of color. And so that's what my research is really looking at. First, qualitatively going in there, understanding how the workers and the staff and the judges address race, if at all, right, in these programs where you're supposed to build rapport, build a relationship. And, you know, most therapeutic research will show that you have to recognize a person's identity. And most people of color recognize, like, hey, blackness is a part of my identity. So if you're not recognizing that, can you build a rapport? And then now, you know, I'm writing papers in that. And I'm also, you know, 
came across came across a uh, database that was released last spring, um, in which now I'm doing some quantitative work looking at race in a national sample of specialized courts to see how affected they are and ask some other questions too, as far as overreach and overpunishing, et cetera. So yeah, that is fascinating work and definitely has the potential to, you know, change some real things for people in their lives. Um, yeah. So I have a kind of, I think, a question that we always sort of draw back to at the Ebony Tower, which is what advice do you have for doctoral students? And maybe we'll start mm. with what advice do you have to, for doctoral students um, on the academic job market or kind mm-hmm. of making that transition? Yeah, that's a big question. I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about this because I feel like when I was in graduate school, I just didn't feel like I had enough preparation to what it was like. And I'm sure you all will cover this, you know, throughout the Ebony Tower, you know, things on just prepping you for the job market experience period of going to interviews, sending out resumes, you know, doing job talks, doing practice lectures and talks for these places, what to say, how to negotiate. I mean, it is a completely separate monster. Um, And I think if you're not familiar with it right now and you're about to head that way, you should get as much uh, get as educated as much as you can on those topics because it's it's a lot and learn as much as you can about how to do an effective job talk what kind of lectures should you do for a practice talk you know um what should you say when you're at an interview how did you do these things what you should you eat because they always take you out to dinner and lunch should you drink should you not drink right um and all of it is a test you're on the entire time uh so you just have to be really you know knowing on what's going on with that um and i'll also say it's really important to figure out who you are, and you may not figure it f- completely out until you cross the other side, but what kind of scholar are you? I don't think you really get a grasp of that until after you graduate and you start somewhere. But like I said, uh, I had, when I was on the market, right, and I'll just keep it real and tell you all my numbers, right? I had, and I mean, I, it was pretty good, but I had six, I went on, I had six interviews, right? And that was kind of a good number for, you know, People, when I looked at my peers, a lot of people had one or two. Um, and I had a, a wide array of schools from R1s to, you know, teaching schools. And I really wasn't prepared for that. Like, where where do I want to go? I know I want I needed to get an academic tenure track position, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to do research. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do teaching. Um, so that was like figuring out as I went kind of thing. Um, and and I would say like my first, and then you also learn as you go, because my first two interviews, um, I didn't get the jobs, but the next four I got job offers for too. So it's like, don't get discouraged, you know, no, be saying no is, uh, is part of the game, getting say no too. Um, it hurts a little bit. It's going to sting, but you know, you just keep pushing forward. But I would say is that I think the reason why I got the other offers at the end, the last four is because I learned the game because my first two was the first time stepping in, seeing what they expect, seeing what they wanted. It was R1, a top R1 that was also a good teaching school. And I was like, I could have did better. And I feel like if I would have do it again, I'd be much stronger. <laughs> but it was my fir- the fir- my very first interview. And this is sometimes you just don't know. You throw your hands out there. You don't know who's going to call you back. And so I was like, the very first interview was a school that I had didn't think was going to call me back because it was number two in my field. And I was like, and they called me back and they were excited. And I'm like, oh God, you know, what am I going to do? <laughs> what am I going to say? I was nervous. You know, I was like, these people are watching me. My first job talk ever, my first teaching, I'm talking to deans, I'm talking to 
department heads. I'm talking to all the faculty. I was like, it was overwhelming, right? But you know, I tried to I try to do the best I can. Um, and you know, they and they were cool because they were afterwards when I didn't get the job. You know, they kind of let me know it had nothing to do. They felt like I did great interview as interviews. They just felt like the position who they wanted me to replace a faculty member that was retiring that I wasn't the best replacement because our research didn't align that same way. And I, they wanted me to fulfill that need that he had. Um, so I understood it and I said, okay, cool. Um, so I just think that whole process of like understanding of where you want to go. Cause our ones, I'll say this, our ones are very research heavy, right? And you got to publish. And at the institution I was going to, the first place I applied, they wanted about four to five publications a year, right? So they expected 20, 25 to 30 publications by the time I went up for tenure. Wow. They said they didn't care where you published, right? They just they just want it. And that's a lot of output. And because it was my first school, I really didn't know. Right? I was like, mm, okay, and that's crazy if all these schools asked for that. And then I went to a bunch of other schools and they asked for nowhere near that. Um, but then I wind up going to a teaching school where I'm at now because I felt that uh, it gave me the most room to the most space to kind of figure out what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be as a scholar. Because if I went into an R1, I immediately had to hit the ground running. Like I immediately had to publish, 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 teach, teach, teach. And you need some time to learn how to be a professor. You need some time to learn how to do faculty service, be on searches, at, advise students, right? There's different role as a graduate student we really don't know. And so I chose this because I'm like, mm, honestly, I was like, I just did this PhD program. I don't want to hit the ground just doing publish, 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 and being intense. And so I was like, you know what? I'm choosing school because they're very supportive. Their um, publication load is very manageable, right? Which I know I can hit. The teaching load isn't like a big teaching load at other schools where it's like four or four other teaching schools. Schools is a three, three. They have pre-tenure, sabbatical, all this kind of great stuff. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go here. Um, and I also like the students because we're a good mix of students from the suburbs and from the city. Um, but I was like, and so why I say this too is because what I wasn't also thinking about, which I feel like is a blessing in disguise, is transitioning from one to the other. I think it's easier to transition, and people and 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 I've been told this also from you know other people mentors now that I have since I've been in the field. It's easier to transition from teaching school to R one than it is to go from R1 to teaching school. Uh, because at a teaching school, you just have to do so much more service. You have to really learn how to teach well. You have to you know, be involved on committees. Like I said, I'm in my third year. I'm already a coordinator of a concentration, which is like ridiculous. I'm on a lot of university committees. I advise students like academically, like this is the classes you need to take, la, la, la. Um, you know, and career advising, and you just do a lot more hands-on work. And then when I look at my peers who are R1s, right, I mean, they teach two classes a semester. They got a TA. They got an RA. I mean, they got – so it makes sense. They can easily publish because they don't have a lot of other demands and meet those expectations. And so right now I'm thinking about if I want to go to R1, and I know if I do, I'm going to feel very – relaxed in that kind of environment because I know what I had, what I accomplished here at a teaching school. And I know once I get to R1 and I get a TA, RA, teaching only two classes a semester, you know, sky's the limit. Of course, I'm going to be promoting and publishing like crazy. Um, but I've heard, if you go from an R1 where you're used to having all that support and you're not grading your own students' papers and you're able to publish and not have to worry about other things, and you go to a teaching school where the demands are so much higher, I think it's going to be a tougher way tougher yeah, transition. That's a great point. Well. Wow. 
I hadn't thought about that at all. I had always thought about it from like the other perspective, like, oh, you can go to an R1 and if you don't like it, maybe you can go to a teaching school. I hadn't thought about it like that. So that was good tea, Ty. (laughs) Um, So in wrapping up, just wondering if you have any other general advice that you'd like uh, to provide to graduate students or prospective graduate students or... Anyone, for that matter. Yeah, um, you know, you know, my general rule of advice is something that I just always want people to do. It's just always be yourself. Um, you got one life to live. It's good to get advice from people, you know, and tell you how to navigate things. But ultimately, decisions up to you. And especially if you are a person of color, especially from a marginalized com- community. You have to be very careful of what you receive because a lot of it is not coming from your perspective. A lot of it is not coming from your walk of life. And so you, eventually you'll try to find yourself molding to be something that you're not. And so you always have to stay true to yourself, even if the odds don't look like that you're in your favor, if you don't feel that people are going to receive you well. I feel like the only way we can make true change and make a mark is if we get people used to all the wide arrays of, arrays of diversity, right? And if we if we continue, I feel like sometimes in the black culture, we have we we like to mold ourselves to be this kind of form fitting, you know, typical you know black person and carry ourselves away. But then we're not we're doing I feel like others who come up behind us a disservice because then they're going to expect everyone to act that way and somebody who might be different in their behaviors, different in their speech, differently in how they move, well, they're only going to be like, oh, well, you know, Terrell did it this way. And so if, if we see another black candidate that doesn't do it the way Terrell does, then he probably won't be successful. And I don't want to do that. So I come in. And what I'm saying is because, you know, that's one of the things I stood by when I was applying to grad, uh, programs in uh, academia. People would say, because I was very involved with like social activism and protests and parks and and doing all these things and writing letters and being just very who I was and what I felt I needed to do. And people would say, you know, maybe you should put that on your CV. You know, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should just save that away, la, la, la. And I was like, I'm not doing that because when I go to any of these institutions, when they bring me in, I want them to know exactly what and who they're getting, right? And they're getting somebody who is vocal about certain issues, somebody who's going to stand on certain things and not shade away from it. And so I felt comfortable when they called, when all these schools called me. And like I said, I got a lot of callbacks. When all these schools called me, I didn't hide anything about who I was. So it's possible to still get what you want, be where you want to be, and still be who you want to be at the same time. So that'd be my major piece of advice. Do not change who you are or what you want to do because you feel that people won't receive you. They will. They will. And we just need more of that. I feel you. That's actually why I went on my interviews uh, in my African print pants. I was like, if you don't accept me in these pants <laughs> now, you can have a problem when I get to campus. <laughs> yeah. And you'll find that people want that too. When I, when I put it on my CVs, a lot of the schools that hit me up, hit me up because that was on my CV, right? So I stood out compared to, again, like I said, most of the time people look very similar on the CVs and resumes, but I stood out because they saw that extra form of activism and being a part of the community and doing different things. And if a school wants that, they want colleagues like that, then they're definitely going to bring you in because that's something that they also value too, which makes even better because you get put in a space that you have more like-minded folks like yourself and you can do more more change in this world. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great advice. Yes. 
Thank you. Now, oh, thank we you. have to ask before you leave. So we started this thing called the Ebony Tower Book List, and it actually never became a book list because every professor we talked to was like, um, yeah, I don't read for pleasure. I don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> they actually mentioned what you did at the beginning of the interview is how much TV they watch. So as a part of the Ebony Tower, we'll call it a media list. So it can be. Yeah, maybe we could call it a syllabus, Steffi. Oh. Like the Ebony Tower syllabus. And we put mm. media and books. Yes. Okay. So if you are reading anything or watching anything really interesting that you think that our listeners could benefit from or would really enjoy, share, please. Okay. Um, so what I say, well, I'll start with what I've been watching. You know, I watch a lot of TV and I've been watching a lot of black media shows like um, Queen Sugar, which is phenomenal on the own network. Shows like Atlanta Blackish, of course, Insecure, um, I think are all really good shows that I watch. Um, but I, I have a wide array of shows. I watch things like The Walking Dead. I watch superhero shows like The Flash. Oh, I watch Black Lightning now, which I'm really hyped they got on. Um, and then some, you know, with my wife, I watch things like uh, Real Housewives of Atlanta and stuff like that. And so I have a good, you know, balance of television shows I watch. Um, Did you watch it last night? Did you no, watch the reunion? I'll be watching that immediately after this interview. <laughs> 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 on TBR, but I seen everything that was going on with what they mad about Kim. Kim, uh, what's her name? I don't remember her last Ooh, name. Yeah, when you see that last few minutes, yeah, oh, you're yeah. gonna be hot. Charlamagne gave a donkey today, too. I also watched Breakfast Club, um, <laughs> interviews and stuff like that. Um, as far as reading, I would say that, um, I actually read a lot of, um, it's kind of weird, but I read a lot of like marketing business type books, um. That are for some reason they just really fascinate me because they just they just help you help me think about things a little differently as far as as a scholar academic my brand what I want to do a little bit more motivational I also read more spiritual things too like um, Oprah's wisdom for uh, wisdom for Sundays book it's like a pamphlet of her stuff from the Super Soul Sundays I also listen to Super Soul Sundays podcast and various other podcasts um, I read a couple I just think of what I read most recently a couple of Deepak Chopra books. Um, uh, and there was um, oh, Eckhart Tolle. Um, and so these are people who are like, you know, talking about being true to yourself, finding yourself, finding peace, meditation. Um, I think, you know, some strategies and things I'm trying to learn how to do more. So that's what I've been reading. Nothing too academic. No, I stay away from the academic stuff. I like it to get away from all that jive. That's great. Those are really, really great recommendations. Um, mm -hmm. Well, thank you so yeah. much for being with us. This has been so enlightening and so interesting. What a good conversation. And we're so happy you could come and share some tea and advice with our listeners. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. I really appreciate doing this. And, you know, hopefully some of you listeners learn, you know, learn something, need some advice. If you want to continue conversation to have other questions, you can get at me. Um, I guess I'll give my Instagram is T Connor BHD. And so is my Twitter T Connor BHD. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at just Terrell Connor as well, or BHD podcast. Um, so reach out to me or you can email me, um, at Connor T at newparts.edu. My you know, emails on my phone. So I get them pretty quickly. So whatever you need, you know, if any of your listeners want more questions or have more advice, I'm a very accessible person, and I will get back to you, and we will have a conversation, I promise. 
That's great. And we'll be sure to link all of your uh, connections also in the bio um, summary of this podcast. Cool. Yes. And if you didn't, if you didn't catch all of that, you kept hearing those BHD references. If you didn't catch it. So of course, check out Black and Holly. <laughs> yeah, check, check that out too. <laughs> we always can use more listeners and we, you know, we're doing it for the people. So check out Black and Holly Dangerous. All <laughs> right. Well, thank you, Dr. Connor. Thank you, Daphne and Rachel. Bye. <laughs> Take right. care. Bye. Bye. If you're interested in being featured on the Ebony Tower, have topic ideas, or simply want to ask Ebony anything, visit our website, www.theebonytower.com, or email us at info at Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Ebony Tower. And please don't forget to rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.